Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. I am so excited to share a very special bonus episode with you guys today with someone who is quite literally changing the landscape of food in this country the incredibly inspiring Mr. Jonathan Webb. Jonathan is an entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of App Harvest, a company that is helping to turn his dream of a high-tech farming hub in Appalachia into reality. Before founding App Harvest, Jonathan worked with the U.S. Department of Defense on one of the largest solar projects in the southeastern United States. Before returning to Kentucky in 2017, where he continues to work tirelessly to make the eastern part of the state the ag tech capital of America. With App Harvest, Jonathan is building some of the largest indoor farms in the world, combining conventional agricultural techniques with today's technology to grow non-GMO, chemical-free produce to be sold to the top 25 U.S. grocers. And he happens to be doing this in the place he grew up and loves deeply. Jonathan strives to work alongside the hardest working men and women of Eastern Kentucky and build a resilient economy for the future. In my conversation with Jonathan, we discuss his childhood growing up in Kentucky, his time with the Department of Defense and the work he's done in the energy world, the Netherlands and its high-tech greenhouses, what we can learn from them, innovating the way we source energy, how to better bring people together, and improve the agricultural future of our country and our world. Plus, we'll dig into Jonathan's company, App Harvest, and as usual, so much more. Enjoy. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Sophia. Really appreciate it. Thanks for for, for facilitating conversations like this and appreciate you having me. Oh my God, I'm thrilled. And I, I can't wait for the listeners to hear about what you're doing and, and how you're changing quite literally the landscape of food in this country. Um, 
I, I want to just tell them all, you know, you and I got introduced via email about activism around food and climate and um, support for Appalachia. And then we actually met face-to-face in Detroit, um, which is another, you know, incredible city and, and region, really, of America that I'm passionate about. And um, yeah, I just kind of, I kind of knew from that conversation we had that day that I wanted the public at large, you know, the the listeners of this podcast to be able to hear about what you're doing. And it's really interesting as we, as we get ready to have a conversation about, you know, changing systems and, and really prioritizing the health uh, of the nation through food. We're doing this in, in the midst of the first global pandemic in a hundred years, which is just so surreal. Does, does what's happening with COVID make you hopeful that we will take the need to create better systems more seriously or or are you feeling a bit despondent right now or maybe a little bit of both? So generally speaking, um, I, I am I'm an eternal optimist. So uh, I, I do uh, I do do tend to believe that that you know humanity and, and the planet as a whole has has its best days ahead of us. Uh, but we're we're certainly facing challenging times, and you know, look at health, look at energy, look at food, uh, all of which are, are becoming more and more complex as as humans have now gotten to what seven, you know seven plus billion on the planet, and you know, by twenty fifty we're supposed to get to, to nine billion, and and to be able to support that many people and and have adequate health and adequate energy and ad- adequate food systems, it's uh, it's going to be complex, but. You know the good thing. You know, human innovation has has found a way before, and, and as long as we align and, and we align our, our goals for for people and planet first, I'm very optimistic that that you know we can use innovation and technology to to continue to better the the, the way in which we're building stuff to to keep all this going. Mm-hmm. Did did your passion for agriculture? not to use a metaphor, I realized I just about used a, a farming metaphor. I was going to say, do you think the seed was planted <laughs> um, in, you know, during, during your childhood? Cause you were born and raised in Kentucky. So were you, were you in a rural area? Were you in an agricultural zone? No, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of open land in Kentucky and, and even getting out and just, just being out. But, but I grew up as a, as a very, you know, what, somewhat, you know, normal, I don't know what, you know, normal is relative, but, but normal up, upbringing across what I would say, you know, kind of middle America. My, my parents both have high school degrees. I've, you know, come from a, a very humble background of sorts. And, um, you know, we didn't talk about, about a lot of this. We, my, my father and mother were just you know, looking at how, how do they get by that week and looking back on it now, reflecting on it, you know, the challenges they went through to just put food on the table that was enough. Not where is that food coming from and how, how are we getting it to the table? You know, so I've been very fortunate and privileged to be able to, you know, take a step back, but I definitely think, you know, my roots, one being in Kentucky where coal was very dominant. So one of the largest coal producing states in the U S a region that's been known to power the U S and then now moving back to Kentucky and and hopefully helping transform uh, Central Appalachia into a region that's known for feeding the U.S. Uh, but but definitely my upbringing here is 
has, has been able to ground me in sorts while I've kind of gone out to New York and gone to DC and pursued other work uh, and now being able to come back here. So uh, place is very important to me. And, and I know a lot of people talk about place-based investment, but you know, I, I think tra- tra- tracking back to the source of where we're doing stuff and looking people in the eye and, and knowing who's all involved, you know, as, as we continue to transform, it's, you know, place-based investments going to, continue to play a critical part of, of rebuilding systems so that, that we know the communities we're building in. So building here is, is incredibly important to me and growing up here has been fundamental and, and shaping certainly mm. the way I think. Well, before we move into the the work that you're referencing, I do love to hear about how people grew up. I, I think so often about you know, the impressive folks I get to sit across from and, and interview about their current work in the world. And and I wonder how it all started. So, you know, you you mentioned a little bit of your upbringing and a little bit about your parents. Who who were you as a kid? You know, what was Jonathan into at eight or ten years old? What what was life for you then? Yeah, again, I I, I was like any other kid that, that grew up and and had good friends and family around me and and didn't, you know, didn't know too much about the environment or planet as a whole, but I knew I, I enjoyed playing in a, a creek or a stream or, you know, enjoyed, you know, playing, playing with my friends in a field and, and didn't think much about it until a little bit later. And, and I went to public schools growing up, went to a public university, the University of Kentucky. Uh, but it wasn't until I, I decided to move to New York and uh, pursued a career in, in, in the wind and solar industry. Um, and, and there, there were many steps that kind of got me to that point, but, um, you know, really then started to unravel all the stuff that goes on in order to, to make sure that there is, you know, power that, that turns on your lights or, or food, how does the food get to your table? So for me, I had again, a very humble background and childhood that, that's been able to ground me in sorts. Uh, but you know, at this stage, it's more about how do we ensure that those net, you know, the kids, that are coming up now can enjoy, you know, these, these same experiences and, and that we have clean streams and that we have, you know, beautiful mountaintops and that we have you know, rolling fields. That's, that's not a given right now. And it's, I think it's very jarring to think about, but, you know, we, we look at COVID and, and see what's, what's happening that, you know, we, we just feel like all this is, is it's a certain thing. Like humanity is going to continue because that's just what happens. It's, None of it is certain. We have to will it into existence. And if we don't willfully change, you know, many of the, the systems that are in place that are that are providing our food or power, water, and, and, and so on and so forth, you know, the, it's not a given that, you know, the next generation is going to have it better than the last generation. And if you think of the American dream, right, that's, that's it. Like, you know, every, every mother and father just just wants to be able to do enough to make sure that their son or daughter has it better than they had it. And, and we're getting to tipping points that, that are going to be hard to turn back. And if we don't move aggressively, uh, it's going to be challenging. But I am hopeful. I mean, you look at the private sector, you look at advocacy, you look at investors, you know, you, you look at the consumer and they're voting with their dollar. You know, the next 10 or 20 years are, are critical, uh, but, but it, it, it's certainly you know, a hopeful time that, that we can you know, start to, to make a, a drastic shift. And hopefully, you know, if there's a silver lining out of COVID, it's that somehow it galvanizes us together and we can 
you know, for me, even being in Kentucky, you know, what happens in the capital of China affects Southeast Kentucky in two months. Now, if that doesn't wake people under up to understand that there's one humanity and that there's one planet and we're all in this together, I really have no idea what will. But but I am hopeful that it does wake people up and that, and that we see it now that it doesn't matter. We can't separate ourselves by borders or oceans or whatever it is. We're so interconnected. We have to solve these problems together. And then, and then hopefully coming out of COVID, there's you know, some of that galvanizing spirit that, that, that carries on. Yeah, I, I so agree with you. And I find that to be such an inspiring perspective. And I think it's important to hit on the truth that we need to understand that we have, we as humanity, we have engineered a global planet. We've chosen this. We've increased travel. We've we've become so enamored by so many aspects of each other's cultures, and yet you also see the politicizing of of culture and place in such a strange way. And and what I wish we could hold is that two things can be true. We can set global priorities for humanity, and we can care about our local community. And and that feels really clear to me in places like you're referencing when we talk about Kentucky, when we talk about Appalachia, because with, anywhere you look, you can see the history of a region. And you know, you mentioned that that your area of Kentucky is a is is or has been a huge coal producing uh, resource for America. You know, we we powered America on coal for a very long time, and yet we do, to your point, have to understand that as we evolve, as science evolves, we have to engineer better systems. And when I think about generations, you know, I, I know your granddad was a coal miner. I, I know that there's been devastating impacts of, of mass job loss across the region. You know, at, at least to today, 11 coal companies have filed for bankruptcy just since Trump was elected president. And and the job losses are meaningful to people in these areas that have been employed in these companies. And so when I start thinking about innovation, when I start thinking about how we've got to do better to support seven and a half and eventually nine billion people, I think about regions like, like the one that you grew up in and I remember in the last election cycle just thinking, you know, why aren't these big solar companies marching into Kentucky and saying, we're going to build new solar plants here. We're going to give you better jobs with better wages, cleaner working environments, less health hazards, you know, great benefits. We, we've we've got we've to think about all these people in all these places as we think about innovation and change. And... And I, I suppose I just say all of that really to offer that it's something that, you know, being from California and, and knowing how the environment's been important to me, uh, much in the way it was to you playing outside for my whole childhood, I, I too think about what I want it to look like for my eventual kids and their eventual kids. And and I wonder, seeing those impacts in your community, do you now trace back, because it's easy for us, right, to have conversations in the present and say, this is what we'd like to see differently and this is how we'd love to invest in people and support economic development in, in, in hard hit, you know, regions of the country and, and then think about the global impact and all of it. And, and we have to, but do you think that that came from you're seeing the region change throughout your life. Do, do you think that's why you took the path that you did 
in college, why you went to Washington? Do, do you think that those things are all tied together? Yeah, I, one, absolutely. So a couple things on that for me, and that's where, you know, we, we've, so what, what we're pursuing, I, I think the very exciting thing about what we're doing is I, is I do look at my background and I try to tell anybody and everybody I meet around here, just one individual that, that comes from a background that, that somewhat similar, maybe very similar to many other people around here. And, and it's somehow leadership's, you know, responsibility at either universities or political, whatever it is, to inspire and galvanize youth, right? So, you know, for me, what we're doing, it's, it's the largest all-cash investment uh, ever made in, in the Eastern Kentucky. Uh, we're, we're building in the poorest congressional district of the U.S., and, you know, yes, this has been a long process, but I'm just one individual. And frankly, at this point, I could, God willing, I'm here until I'm 100, but, you know, I could somehow pass at some point, and this thing's going to carry on one way or the other. We, we're, we're moving, there's momentum. But how do we galvanize, you know, youth? I don't know. But, but what I do know is the best and brightest from Kentucky don't stay here to rebuild our region. They moved to Boston. They moved they moved to LA. They moved to San Francisco. That is a problem. And we got we have got to get our best and brightest to not just sit in San Francisco and build an app to figure out how we can get tennis shoes faster and figure out how to go back to their communities and rebuild their communities and reimagine what's possible. Uh, but yes, for me, it was, you know, moving back to Kentucky happened. There was about a 10, there, I lived out of the state for 10 years and uh, got out of undergraduate. I wanted to build energy projects. Well, at the time, you're not going to build a coal plant. You're not going to build natural gas. You know, that was it was emerging, but not there. So, what was happening a lot? Wind and solar. So, what for me, the sustainability piece really came over time. But it was just a sheer fact that I wanted to build stuff. And at that time, what you built was wind and solar. So, as a part of building large scale solar, some of the largest in the U.S. And what I saw happen over that 10-year time frame of friends, family, you know, even just seeing local news and what was happening, I go back to, I think it's one of the darkest stains in American history. I think we'll look back at how we shut down the mines and whether it's the left or the right, you know, the, the, the progressive or the conservative side, it, it's irrelevant. What we all benefited from was low-cost electricity that carried us to be the economic powerhouse of the world. That, that cost electricity came from coal. We shut down the mines. Forget the mines. It's the people who powered those mines. Coal is just, it's a piece of material in the earth. But the people that actually powered this country were the people of Central Appalachia. And the lack of leadership to think through, what are we going to do when we actually shut all these, these mines down, when we shut these companies down? And I still sit here and continue to be just shocked at the lack of coordination on what's next. I go back to, you know, I think I'm very biased, but I think it's the hardest working men and women in the country, the people of that region that have powered our country. Uh, and, and so, you know, big picture, I, I don't know where all this goes, but, but I definitely feel, again, very optimistic that there's an opportunity to, to continue to reshape and not make it about war. I mean, we all say, I mean, what, what, what does war win? I mean, it doesn't win anything. So, you know, whether it's a war on coal or a war, you know, overseas, it doesn't. But can we sit at tables and find common ground? We don't need to all agree on everything. 
but we can find what we do agree on and then figure out a path forward. And it's so frustrating that no one came into central Appalachia. No one sat down with communities. No one sat down with community leaders and said, okay, we're going to transition. Now you might not agree with that transition, but we're going to try to transition. Now, what can we agree on? And not everybody would have been on board, but there would have been a lot. And I think if you look at the support we got with our company, people were like, you're going to get run out of town. You're going to get, no, we didn't. Everybody everywhere, anyone we came across, the, the whole reason we're able to do what we're doing is not just because of me by any you know, stretch of the imagination. It's because communities rallied around what we were doing and they simply showed up and said, how do we get this done? Uh, and, and that to me, you know, if we look at, you know, the possibilities that are still ahead of us here, even in our own country, I mean, we don't have to go fly around the world to find extreme poverty. I had, when I moved back to Kentucky and in, in, in the Pikeville area, I had one in three of my neighbors were making less than $10,000 a year. I mean, that's not the best that, you know, me and you and everybody else should call this great, you know, this great American dream that just doesn't exist. And I know you're working in Detroit and, and there's a big similarity there where you had the decline of the auto industry in Detroit and there's a bit of a renaissance now. And, and we've seen the decline of, of the coal industry in Central Appalachia. But you know, I'm hopeful, but we got to figure out how to get our best and brightest to dig in, you know, move back to the middle part of the country and, and rebuild our, our communities collectively for, for the future. Because if we don't, then, then we've got what we've got. And that's, you know, a, a very, very hard road ahead of us. And it can't be 10, 15, 20 people trying to figure it out. It needs to be, you know, a, a slew, slew of, uh, of folks that, that have left, you know, for just a few big cities to, to come back and try to rebuild the, the middle part of the U.S. Were you seeing changes like the ones that you're talking about even as a kid, were you conscious of, of the way that the region around you was changing? No, not really as a kid. It was, um, I, again, I think the, the, I personally now kind of, as I've gone through all this and I had, you know, I had a meeting with the, you know, the last president uh, I've had, you know, many I've had meetings at this white house. So high ranking officials on both sides, I, I continue to scratch my head. I'm, you know, Steve Case, the founder of AOL, was our first investor. I continue to scratch my head, and I'm trying to figure out, like, why, why am I even in the room? What's the value? And, and I think the value I've been able to bring to the table is just a very simple way to look at it. And my, my background is no different than anybody else that might have grown up in any surrounding area of this region. Which is, you know, that somehow transitioned through early 20s into you know, seeing the macro world. But I think we all get lost in, you know, get lost in these echo chambers and get lost in, you know, the, we were talking earlier before you, you turn the recording on, you know, about the science and, and the wonky stuff. Like, we've got to find a way to just make it resonate, connect. And I think fortunately, what we're doing, we found ways to simply message and make it resonate. Um, and, and so, no, I didn't. I didn't really have these eye-opening experiences when I was younger. I just had a very normal childhood. But when the eye-opening experiences came later, it's then, you know, how do you connect that back to everyone else who, you know, who sees the world in which I did? Um, and, and I think, you know, that has been our value that, that we've been able to just, you know, find, you know, common ground where we can find it and, and try to build on these building blocks. I mean, if we're building what is effectively the largest, you know, sustainable project in the heart of coal country ever built. 
And this is part of what makes me excited because to your point, if we could toss the assumption of difference out the window, if we could agree on a couple of things, like I always, the joke I always tell is, look, two plus two is always going to equal four. If we looked at science, if we looked at the fact that to your earlier point, clean air, clean water, clean land should never be partisan. We could, we could really get somewhere and we could realize that, you know, in the way that you and I have shared, I grew up in Southern California, you grew up in Kentucky, but we have a lot of the same experiences with nature in our backgrounds. People who are told that they're different from other people really aren't. You know, the, the specific circumstance might look a little bit different, but there are these universal truths we all tap into. And that's what makes me excited about the work that you're doing is that we're getting back to the reality of, hey, how do we take care of each other? This is important everywhere. And yes, we've got to design reinvestment in certain regions in ways that helps them, that make sure there's not a brain drain happening, that makes sure that people can hold on to their communities for generations to come. And and I love that your work eventually took you home, even when it takes you all over the world, because it's certainly the way that my work has taken me everywhere that has made me realize we're all mostly the same. And and I, I love that those are the truths that we can then bring home with us. Yeah, I mean, yes. So we we are not as far apart as we seem at all. I, I have been, you know, even the last 18 months, I uh, spoke at Berkeley for uh, their half Earth Day. It was E.O. Wilson, you know, working to preserve half the world's land and fresh water for biodiversity. Um, I will go there have great conversations. I don't really meet anybody in the room that I can't figure out some way to connect. And then I come back where, you know, again, Eastern Kentucky, I could be wrong, but I think it's roughly 90% of the people in Eastern Kentucky voted for the current president, Trump. And you would think if I go to Berkeley and I'm having a conversation and then I come here, like somewhere there's going to be this big friction point. And there's not, because the reality is, we do have so much more in common and I don't want to get too, there's a lot of people you could have on your show that'll be you know, much more intelligent than me on this topic. But you know, the only thing I can think of is that again, you know, this partisan politics that we've got, the, the partisan you know, media on, on left and right, the, the you know, social media echo chambers that keeps everybody in the, like that is creating more of a divide than actual people. Like if me and you can have conversations like this and you can get people in Eastern Kentucky, having conversations with people from Berkeley, then what they'll find is they like a lot of the same stuff. And like their values in life align a lot more than what they, what they, what they contradict. And the shocking thing for me is we're just not having the conversations. I don't know how we get to a point to where we're, we're more, the, the conversation is more aspiring and more about how we bring people together to a table versus let's just get on social media and figure out what we don't agree about. And for some reason right now, that's all that's going on. But for me, in my experience, I have gone to the farthest left of circles, been in them, and then within eight hours on a plane, I'm back in what some people would say might be some of the more far-right circles. And, and to me, 
it's it's a it's just astounding to me, like the amount of over and commonalities that I can see in people, and I'm just a normal human, that how are we so divided when you actually hear and, and you hear people talk and we're, we're all trying to say the same thing, I but agree. we're doing it in totally different ways. Gosh, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think about, to your point, we're often told that things are much more disparate than they are. And and the, when I think about your background, there's there's something that relates to this that I think the audience will really get a kick out of because, you know, you mentioned you, uh, when you went into the energy sector, were, were looking at a lot of wind and solar. Now, what people might not expect is that you were developing solar projects for the United States Department of Defense. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think green energy, DOD, working together, but they were, and, and they must continue to be again for, for, you know, the sort of innovation of, of, of the future of the country and our place on the planet. So I'm curious how you wound up working there and, and maybe what you studied in college that, that got you onto that track. Yeah. So, so my, my background at the university of Kentucky, I call it, I graduated from the, the Gatton college of business, but it's a great, great school. Uh, you know, it, it gives you all everything I feel, I guess it gives you everything you need because I, I guess I'm doing fine. Um, don't have a master's and, you know, I, I, I tell a kid and we, we've got a lot of high school programs that, that we're funding and sponsoring here in Eastern Kentucky and, and any young person I meet, I try to say, look, it doesn't matter if you're in Hong Kong, London, New York, or if you're in Pike County, Kentucky, you have the access to all the same information. And, and, you know, we're moving into that world, you know, all this, yes, the, the information's flying at us fast and furious. But if you're willing to walk in on what you want, so for me, it was self-taught. I, I self-taught mainly on, on how to build wind and solar projects. I started uh, advising on private sector projects, and then I moved to D.C. And so the, the work you mentioned, it was the last White House that uh, set out an initiative to have the U.S. Army, uh, Air Force, and Navy procure their power from renewables. Uh, so I was a part of of leading efforts on, on that team. Uh, we built 750 acres of solar down in Georgia. Um, it, it, it was a long, again, a long 10 year journey, like anyone that has their 10 year journey that, that kind of goes ups and downs. Uh, but I did know the moment I got that position in DC, I would eventually be able to move back to Kentucky, the place I love and, and, and attract, you know, sustainable capital. There's all this sustainable flying around the world the one place that wasn't coming was the place that was heavily impacted by the, you know, there's the decline in coal and then there's wind and solar straight up. And, and somehow we did not, the, the diversion there couldn't be any more stark. Um, but then the 2016 election, and again, no matter whatever your side you're on, left or right, the 2016 election was definitely a statement on the way many people in this country felt. They felt like, there's 15 urban centers or city centers around the country, and then there's the rest of the country. And whether you like it or you don't like it, it's irrelevant. Whether you like this president, or don't like this president, kind of irrelevant. The, the fact is there's a divide. And, and so for me, I, I just felt immediately compelled to, to move from D.C. back to Kentucky. And it, it was a matter of months before I ended up quitting my job and, and starting this company and was fortunate to get, you know, 
pretty notable early investors. And then now here we are, uh, you know, off to the races a bit, even through COVID. But yeah, it's, you know, I think for me, any young person that I could possibly talk to is just, you know, the open source information that's out there. Uh, that you know, a, a college degree is great, but but at the end of the day, you know, passion and in pursuing that passion and finding the information, uh, it was was you know, it, it was my story, and, and I hope you know we'll see many other young people in Kentucky that you know come out of the gates in the next five five years or so. But um, you know, what about you? I, I guess your your journey. I mean, what what you, you what led you to acting? I mean, how, how did you how did you land that? You know. Was it self-taught at all or was it classes or was it? Um, It was honestly kind of an accident. I I started doing theater in high school. So let me think about this. No, it was actually eighth grade. So my, um, my school had this arts requirement and you had to focus on a different art study every semester in middle school. And I just never really thought I cared about theater. I was really sort of science focused. I wanted to go to medical school. I wanted to be a heart surgeon. Um, And I put off the theater requirement until the last semester. So second semester of eighth grade, I thought I was going to be able to weasel my way out of it because I was playing sports and that didn't work. (laughs) Um, And I had to do this play and I realized that everything I loved about literature, which was my favorite thing to study in school, was really coming alive on a stage and that there was this real experience of catharsis and kind of emotional journeying for every person in the room. And then I got really nerdy and I started studying uh, where these sorts of traditions had come from. And I realized that there was something at the time that felt so sacred to me that as humans, we passed our stories before we had written language. You know, we, we had these stories, we had these essentially these plays and that's where our history came from and our experience came from and um, so much culture came from. And I thought, you know, there are ways to have conversations like this that are really meaningful to people, that do things for people. And we can learn about each other. We can learn about other people's experiences. We can humanize each other. Uh, and we can do that through tears, through laughter. You know, there's so many ways. And and that really just changed everything for me. And so I, I, I really took a pivot, uh, started focusing on theater all through school. And then when I was uh, applying to colleges, I told my parents that I wanted to go to theater school, not medical school. You can imagine how not thrilled they were, but it turned out okay. <laughs> well, so the time, so the time there, and one uh, didn't um, telling these stories. I mean, again, you know what we're doing behind this. I, I would say in this very, very small circle behind the scenes, we have a lot of nuance. Like we're. You know, with invest very high profile investors, but when you say telling these stories and why, you know, why for me are we trying to figure out who do we connect with and, and talk to? 
in these next 10, 20 years, we have got to find a way with the art forms, whether it's music or, or what's, on, what's on a big screen or whatever it is, how do we weave into the conversation all this weird, complex stuff that we're doing on our It's very hard for the average working American or average person to, to connect with. You know, for us, again, we do not have like a big, big out there story to the general public. What we do have is a big story behind in different political circles, in different investor world, in the, world, in the tech world. But it's really your world that is ultimately, in my, you know, my very much opinion, that's going to shape that next 10 or 15 years and that we have to realize you know, the, the microphone people have to tell stories and inspire and weave in these complex narratives that it's, it's that simple. I mean, for me, I even look at some of the movies I watched growing up and in ways in which it, it just told me different things that, you know, I didn't learn in a classroom. And, and hopefully, I hope that whether it's musicians or artists or, or anyone of the sort carries that authority, understands how much power they truly hold because the, the general public is listening to you all. They're not listening to friends. They're just not doing it. And so it's the world that somehow intersects, but the, the people telling the stories that, that again, how, whether it's a sitcom show or anything, finding a, a narrative that, that can have impact and meaning in every one of these stories, I'm hopeful, but again, is that optimist that, you know, 10 years from now, that's just where the world's going, that we're telling these complex narratives through all these various forms of medium so that the general public can be on board and find a way to, to come along for the ride. Yeah, yeah, I agree. If it's a couple scientists at a podium, we're all screwed. <laughs> You were developing, you know, these sustainable energy farms, you know. Um, we're talking about stuff with the DOD. We're talking about solar. And then you happened to come across something that was happening in the Netherlands. I had never heard about the agricultural program happening in the Netherlands that you told me about. And, and I'm, I would wager that a lot of the people listening haven't either. They developed a growing procedure which eliminated virtually all agricultural chemicals and yielded 30 times as much food as traditional agricultural methods. You read about it. It changed the course of your life. Can, can you explain to our listeners what you learned, what they were doing over there, and, and, and what kind of light bulb that set off for you? Yeah, so that, to me, I think... This is why I continue to be extraordinarily optimistic on the planet and, and, and us as people on the planet, uh, because the good thing is there are solutions around our world. We just have to quickly adopt those and rapidly bring them to scale. Uh, so my work in the energy world, the contrast of being from a region that was seeing heavy decline of coal while we saw wind and solar just rip and roar around the world and take off. So, you know, look at energy in that form where you're producing electrons over to energy that's, that's ultimately food and agriculture, right? So you put food in your body that's another form of energy, you know, to power you. 
seeing, I was in DC and continued to hear about the country of the Netherlands. There's a great article the National Geographic did, This Tiny Country Feeds the World. That article came out a little bit after I started App Harvest. Um, and it really, from there, started to be this groundswell that was bubbling up. It's a country a third the size of Kentucky in land mass. They have the second most agricultural exports in the world, only behind the U.S. They're a third the size of one state in the U.S. So then I'm in D.C. and I'm going, wait, what? I'm surely reading something wrong. What's going on? So after World War II, uh, when the country could not feed itself because of World War II, they used government, private sector, and education institutions to rebuild their agriculture sector. And they've done it over decades that has become the most efficient, uh, the most innovative using technology, and just best idea wins. I don't know how else to describe it. It's not a partisan, not a this or that. And so, you know, I've, I've tried to use the word resilient now more than sustainable, building resilient systems for the future. Uh, but you know, looking at the U.S., what we're the largest agriculture economy in the world, what we've had going for us is abundant land, abundant fresh water, just all, all these abundant resources. So we haven't had to be wildly efficient. The Netherlands, on complete opposite contrast, they don't have a lot of land. They didn't have a lot of fresh water. They have very little resources and have been able to build systems that, like you said, can use 90% less water than open field agriculture, no chemical pesticides, 30 times yield per acre. If we simply adopt solutions that are already available, and we quit, and, and so, uh, you know, speaking of, of kind of our global stage now being in Kentucky, we had the UN Security Council uh, come to Kentucky for the first time in our state history uh, a couple months ago, and we briefed them on, on what we're doing. Um, but if our, if our world adopts these solutions that are already available, we have a totally different world in 10 or 15 years. We free up land. We free up fresh water. We can let natural ecosystems come back and come to life. It is so, it is so frustrating to know that the solutions are right in front of us. Other countries are adopting them. Uh, but the good thing is, is you know, it, it, it's not a left or right conversation. I had a, I had a long meeting with Secretary Purdue uh, a couple months ago with him and his team. They'd been following what we were doing, and he's a huge fan of this. And so I go back to you know, this concept that left versus right, let's, let's no one take credit for it. We don't need credit. Let's not make it about this side or that side. Let's just say, hey, we want to be the most resilient country in the world. We want to promise future generations a better, a better future than what we have. Well, let's all get on the same page. And the energy conversation, it was hard. I mean, it was very contentious. There's either camps that you're, you're on this camp or you're on that camp. And, and, but I, for food and agriculture, I think there's an opportunity. Food is something we all, we all consume food every day, several times a day. And, and it's something that can bring us together. And I hope the agriculture conversation on how we build agriculture around the world takes a much different tone than how the energy conversation played out. Because it doesn't need to be partisan. It doesn't need to be political. It just needs to be there's solutions. We can get there and we can work together. And I am optimistic. I think the U.S. in 10 or 15 years, we can utilize technology build infrastructure, rebuild farming across the U.S., and have a first-class 21st century farming ecosystem in our country, and then the world coalesces around us. And again, the exciting thing is 
It's not like some Willy Wonka fiction. It's I just send people on a plane and say, go to the Netherlands, here, meet with these universities, meet with these operators, meet with these different facility owners. It's here. We just have to catch up. And and again, I think for for somebody that that our team looking at the problems in the face and seeing by 2050, our world needs 50 to 70% more food. So to, to feed 9 billion people, we need 50 to 70% more food in 30 years. That means if we grew food the way we're growing it now, we need two planet Earths to have enough land and fresh water to grow that food. We're not talking about CNN, Fox News. It doesn't matter. No one is talking about it because no one cares about the 20 to 30 year problem. People care about quarterly earnings, quarterly profits. Can I get elected in two years? And, you know, and then, and then to be fair and look at the family I came from, you think about, well, how am I sending my kid to school or how am I putting food on the table? And, and there's got to be some shakeup to where we are, are thinking much more long term. And we have our political leaders and our business leaders and, and, and consumers all at the table thinking 20, 30 years down the road. Because if we do that, there's plenty of solutions and we can get there. But as we all know, we're in this short-term cycle of thinking, and for some reason, all of this is getting dusted under the rug. And look at COVID. I mean, we could have been talking about COVID for two decades and been wildly prepared. But because we're in this very short-term thinking, we're going to spend $6 trillion in the U.S. instead of spending 50 or $75 billion in preventing all of this from ever being in this circumstance. And, and how do we there? Who knows? But, but there's the opportunity to make it happen. Yeah. And, and I mean, that, that is such a great comparison because it's so frustrating when you look back at the scientists who've been talking about this, who've been talking about a pandemic for decades. You know, even, even the fact that there, there have been, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe it's 11 labs around the world who've all been studying coronaviruses for years because they knew this was coming. And, and yet, Somehow this is being downplayed in our country while there's 100,000 American citizens who've died, more than from any war, more than from any, you know, anything we've ever been involved in. And, and it's, being, it's being politicized. It's, it's being treated as though it's an arguing point for an election rather than a devastating experience that had our pandemic response team not been disbanded, we might have been prepared for. And to me, what you're referencing is a real dereliction of duty to protect and ensure the quality of life. And and that's what ignoring a coming food crisis feels like to me as well. Because I'll be honest, I debate at times, you know, when I think about what my future looks like, I really struggle with my desire to be a parent eventually and the state of the world. And are, are, are our kids going to be able to survive if we don't get it together? So when you talk about how if we were investing in the longevity of survival and of, you know, better systems with less impact on the planet, because to your point, the planet can't sustain what we're doing to it now. Is that where the idea for App Harvest came from? Can, can you tell the listeners what it's about? Because we are having these big macro conversations about food systems and the environment, but, but what is your company doing exactly? Yeah, so, so I've been very fortunate in the last 18 months. We've raised 
uh, about $125 million, which again, I think if you look at the American dream, I'm somebody who comes from a very humble background and still believes something like this is not possible anywhere else in the world. So I still feel like the U.S., we have a lot of problems and a lot of struggles, but we have a lot of opportunity ahead of us. Uh, if we can connect the dots and fill the gaps. But uh, we, we raised, App Harvest has raised roughly $125 million. Uh, we're building our first facility. Uh, and, and we've set out to, to really uh, build across central Appalachia and have the largest indoor sustainable produce hub in the U.S. So if you look at what's happened in the U.S., we're growing our fruits and vegetables in drought-stricken areas. California. Let's be clear. I mean, it's there's water issues every couple of years, up, down. New Mexico, Texas, south of our border, down in Mexico. We're growing our fruits and vegetables in areas that are running out of water. Kentucky, uh, we had a record amount of rainfall in 2018. We keep getting wetter. We have more and more water. So we'll, we'll be able to, we're building these facilities, utilizing technology on the inside, uh, to optimize for the plant. So using technology to put nature first and go, how do we most efficiently and effectively grow this tomato or cucumber or pepper? And one, we take all the sunlight. So we're growing in a glass facility. Uh, take all the sunlight. We utilize the, the, the root. It's a 60-acre structure, so about 2.8 million square feet, where we'll collect all the rainwater off to the side, pump the water back in with UV, no chemicals, so running our facility completely on recycled rainwater, because we're in a region that's water rich, growing fruits and vegetables, utilizing sunlight, but then augmenting technology on top. So in the winter, when we don't have as much light, it'll be the largest LED installation in the world. Philips is providing, we purchased the lights off Philips. So as you can think, sunlight coming through, we don't have as much sun, so the lighting is augmenting for whatever micromoles that the plant is not getting. So we are trying to optimize for the plant, give it everything it needs consistently year round to get it all of the micromoles alive, all of the water, all the nutrients it needs to grow year round. And then ultimately why Central Appalachia beyond being from Kentucky and loving the state I'm from, we can get to about 70% of the U.S. in a one-day drive. So we can get to the East Coast, Midwest, and Southeast in a one-day drive. So reducing trucking, where if you look at California, if I'm in D.C. and I buy lettuce, I'm really buying gasoline with a little bit of lettuce. The majority of the cost of that lettuce in D.C. is to simply transport it from California to D.C. I love California, and I think there should be a lot of produce growing. But I do not think our entire country should be fed off of a couple states and even look at what's happened where most of our produce is going down south of the border. So being in an area where we have the geographic location to get to major markets, we have access to fresh water. Uh, and then, you know, the most exciting thing for me is the people. I, I think, again, you know, look at what's happened here over the last decade. I mean, there are not positive news stories that come out of coal country. It is negative news story after negative news. These are men and women that go to work and come home at night and feel like they're destroying the world when all they're trying to do is make an honest living, put, put food on the table. Being able to people here and help lead an agriculture revolution in the U.S. 
is just the hands down most exciting thing. I mean, it, it goes well. It, to- it's incredible. It's it's passion. It's science. It's purpose. And and to your point, and what we were discussing earlier, if we want to talk about innovating and changing the way we source energy, we've got to consider the people whose lives are on the line in those jobs as we do it. We can't just talk about changing industries. We have to provide options and opportunity and better opportunity for the folks who've been employed in the industries that we are trying to change. They deserve that. Yeah. And that's, you know, we've missed the, you know, again, I go back to, I still believe the U S is, and will continue to be the place to, to make dreams into reality. Uh, but we have a lot of gaps and in, in our political leadership on left and right, our, our business climate, our investment community. But again, I'm incredibly hopeful. I mean, the fact that App Harvest is around and exists. So we're, we're not only a certified B Corp, uh, we're a registered benefit corporation. So what that means is it's very similar to a C Corp, but I don't just have fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders. We have a mission that we've set out. So for example, before we started construction on our first facility, we invested nearly $150,000 in high school education on putting ag tech curriculum into schools. If we really are going to do what we're saying we're doing, we've got to inspire the youth that are going to be here with us. And so having investors, and I'm so fortunate that our investors are really partners. And, and, and I, again, I, you, people have these conversations of, are the capital markets working? Is, you know, is the, is the business climate, you know, destroying the planet? I'm hopeful that out of self-preservation for people in the investor community, if you do not have a company in 10 or 20 years that is adding value to people and planet, you will be stamped out. Consumers are stamping you out. Regulators are stamping you out. And out of simple self-preservation, some people just have a huge heart and the investors do want to follow. They want, they want purpose to lead and profit to follow. But it's getting to a point now, if you simply want to be a company in 10, 20, 30 years, and you are not adding significant value to society, you will get stamped out. And so just out of sheer self-preservation, we've seen so many investors that, that are maybe don't have the 100% viewpoint on the way we see the world, but they think, you know what, this is where, this is where we ultimately need to be just to have a safe investment. If, the, if we want to put capital to work and we want to look back in 15 years, is that a safe place, a super, for example, us, we do have very, very smart investors that, that are in this all for the right reasons. But even if somebody wasn't on the outside looking in, this is the facility we're building is going to operate for 25, 30 years. So we're making a long-term bet that 20 years from now, this is where not only what people want today, but this is where the world is going and where consumers are going to want to be in 20 years. And, and for any investor out there, and, and I've had some really interesting conversations the last year, uh, one of which was uh, the chairman of Procter & Gamble. I heard him speak. I was in the room. Um, and I don't want to quote him word for word, but generally speaking, saying if they don't pivot P&G to be what consumers want it to be in 10, 15 years, the consumers are just going to fight back. Like you had, so whether or not he truly believes in it or doesn't, I have no idea. But what I do know is that the big fortune 500s are now waking up. The big investors are now waking up that if they do not align their products with people first and with planet first, 
then the consumers and regulators and governments and whatever else it may be are just going to push back. And so it is a very exciting time to just be in, in kind of what I would call the impact world of, of cause where's all this going to go? Is it going to be foundations? Is it going to be nonprofits? Is it going to be governments? Ultimately I'm a firm believer that if business is not doing good, then we're all, this is going to be a very hard fight, but, but we are entering a place where, you know, business across all sectors and across all categories and across big institutional investors to smaller impact investors, you know, it's shifting. Uh, and, and again, in five or 10 years from now, you know, hopefully every company has got some type of impact model and they're looking at you know, what their impact is. But, but for us, we've been very fortunate that I, this is not possible 10 years ago and, and the world is really shifting fast to where we're even able to be moving at the speed we're moving right now. Yeah. Well, and to your point, you know, big business is getting behind renewables. They understand that the shift must come. How How is the reception locally? What is your experience? It's great. I mean, we had the last governor who was a Republican and this governor who's a Democrat, both of which publicly supportive of what we're doing. We have, you know, I mean, look at our, look at our, our congressional and Senate delegation and, they've been incredibly supportive. So I don't know that this is a left or right conversation. I've had really good conversations with Senator McConnell and, you know, people as I go to New York or wherever else might think, oh, really? And it's, you know, look, how do we find common ground? People want to see business and enterprise and private sector succeed. And, and if we can find a way to show a path where, there is, there are solutions. There's economic value. There's not only value for the planet and people, but there's economic value we can all create together. And and let's not make this about some esoteric conversation, but there's real tangible ways we can strengthen communities and build resilient systems. And, and for us, it, we have tons of support, whether I'm at a local coffee shop or a community church gathering, or I'm dealing with some you know, high-ranking political official. For us, we've had, we've had tremendous support on the left and right. Well, and when you talk about, you know, making it quantifiable, how, how many jobs do you estimate this will bring to the area? When- so, so the first facility will be 300, and, and we anticipate building several more facilities in the next couple of years. And then it's the trickle out from there. It's not just does that harvest have several hundred or a thousand plus employees, it then becomes an ecosystem of, are we going to bring lighting manufacturers here? Are we going to bring different water technology companies here? And, and there's an ecosystem that develops around what we're doing. Uh, and it truly, we have every university in our region working with us, every university president looking at how they might change curriculum. And, and for us, again, it's, it's much bigger than us as one company. It's how do we develop an in our region. Well, and the ecosystem is is such an important driver of an economy. You know, it's a it's a different conversation, but uh, in my line of work, you know, on average, there's about 200 people employed on a TV show. Between you know your cast and your whole crew and your writers, and it's a lot of people. And the the estimate, I, I'll never forget it. It it came out when we finished the TV series, a show called One Tree Hill that I worked on in North Carolina. We, we were there for nine years. The state released an estimate that our show, which employed about 200 people technically, brought $259 million in revenue 
into the state over the course of nine years because of travel and hotels and restaurant business and and the local, you know, boosts to everything from like Home Depot to clothing stores for supplies, for our show, for construction. It was really incredible. And so when I <clears throat> when I think about you guys talking about, you know, going from from an initial 300 into potentially a thousand or, or more jobs, I think about the multiplier effect. And, and that is so exciting, you know, for Appalachia or, or anywhere that is looking to bolster its economy. Well, and then just the connections and that they're, we're going to offer classes nights and weekends and have these conversations that only happen at some place in downtown Brooklyn. Now we can have those same conversations in a rural community of, of Eastern Kentucky. And, and, and for me, that's the most exciting thing is to see what happens next. Where are we going to, you know, for me, can out of our employee base where everybody is going to have some type of equity and harvest, who's going to be the spin out next? What, who's coming up with the next idea for our region and how can we support them and how can I put them in touch, you know, with, with somebody in San Francisco and these linkages that just do not occur in our region is how do we just make these connections and then let it unroll and let the ball unroll from there. And I think for me, five, 10 years down the road, that's the most exciting piece to this is simply having you know, a place in which we can have these conversations, you know, build up this type of camaraderie and then make the links back and forth where I can set up Zoom calls with somebody in San Francisco and a high school student in, in, in Rowan County, Kentucky, and allow them to bounce ideas back and forth. And, and for me, that's, that's where the most exciting piece, the human element to all this is the most exciting piece to me. Well, and when we consider how to sustain each other, quite literally, with food, what strikes me is that this could really also be a return to each other in relationship. You know, the, the, the platform that you're creating offers us a real way to come home to each other. And I, and I think it's such a special time. And I'm, I'm just excited to see what happens with both the kind of, you know, emotional example that you're setting, but also the job market. You know, I think about how prior to coronavirus anyway, where so many people's employment status has well, we, changed. Kentucky, right now, Kentucky has the highest unemployment in the, in the U.S. And we're at, for, now with COVID, we're at 40% unemployment. And before that, we had some of the highest unemployment. And that's where it, it again, I mean, it's, it's staggering and that's happening with COVID everywhere. But we have a deep hole to dig out of and, and we're going to be a small part in that overall picture. But, but the linkages, the conversations and the human element of it, you know, that's just where all this needs to go. But when you think about that, that's what excites me is because again, to your point, so often we need to see the numbers to be willing to make change. We need to see what's ahead of us. And, and, you know, I, I was looking at the stats um, on renewable energy and obviously these are, are pre-coronavirus because, again, we're mentioning so many people have been laid off and, and we're really hoping that when it's safe, everybody gets those jobs back. But but to know that the solar and wind in- industries respectively employ over 330,000 and over 120,000 Americans in all 50 states, you know, to to think about how whether it's renewable energy or these renewable food avenues that, that you guys are creating with App Harvest, that we are beginning to prove that 
doing better by the planet will also employ more people and employ them in safer in safer ways and in and in companies where to your point they're also being offered these other benefits you know education and technology and systems I, I'm so excited about the classes that you guys are going to offer and and the way that you're going to support your local community your local students you know it feels it feels like that is an incredible way to not only launch a company, create those jobs, but keep expanding and creating new ones. Yeah. And that's again, where do companies go in the next 10 to 20 years? But, you know, I, there is not one publicly traded benefit corporation. So B Corp is a certification. There's not one publicly traded benefit corporation, but at some point, again, me being the optimist here that, you know, we have got to shift past this mindset that there's business and there's the private sector and there's foundations nonprofits and community efforts. So at some point, it's all linked together. And you got to merge. Company, you got to merge. And, and if you want to be a company in 50 years, you got to have healthy communities and you have to have, you know, healthy people around you. So I, I, what we're doing is, is, you know, I hope just becomes, you know, the common sense approach you know, for, for CEOs in the next 10 or 20 years that, you know, this is just what you have to do. And if you're not doing it, uh, it, it's not good for the long-term trajectory of, of, of your own business. So, you know, I, I, again, I, I think we're on the early kind of scale of, of, of what benefit corporations are, are going to look like, not only in the U.S., but around the world. But, you know, again, not just having fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders, but having some larger mission that you've set out for. Uh, so, again, long-term, big-picture you know, you're, you're actually taking your organization to a stronger, healthier place, which, which again, as, as this all shifts and morphs, it's, it's going to be, you know, something we're going to see play out in front of our eyes over the next decade. But, but I am, I'm incredibly hopeful. Me too. And I'm hopeful for when you guys, you know, get this set up in Kentucky and then figure out your next hub out here in California. I, I get excited about, Uh, And that might be wishful thinking, but I I get really excited about the ways we could establish these, these greenhouses, you know, all over and, and feed to your earlier point, the country in so much more local ways, you know, do, do better by people. So there don't have to be chemicals in their food and, and there doesn't have to be quite as much, um, pollution that, that is created just from trucking all that food around. Yep. Nope. And we can get there. The solutions are there. It, it's going to be leadership, consumers pushing, you know, the public pushing. Uh, obviously, uh, it's, you know, political support's needed, but, but a lot of the political folks are going to listen to their constituents and, and what do people have to say. Well, so that's, that's a great question to ask. You know, when we think about what's in store for the future of app harvest, for the future of high-tech farming, is it constituent education that that needs to happen to help make this a success across the country what what can everyone who's listening to this today thinking well i want to advocate for this kind of a of a food system in my community how how do we do that what 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 action steps do we need to take yeah i mean be aware and then vote with your dollar i mean that's you know we all feel powerless in so many different ways right but it's it's not true and, and if you can, if we can all connect with five or 10 people around us and, and we're all buying goods and products and services that, you know, that we feel strongly about, you don't vote once in four years, stop, you vote every day. And so for us, 
again, for App Harvest, you know, we want to just be one small player in a bigger picture of the American food conversation. And, and again, I mean, this is a very active, I mean, look at Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, whether you like it or don't like it, again, somewhat irrelevant. It's more of, this is the conversations that, that, that are playing out in food and, and, and figure out where you, be aware of what's going on and then figure out what you support, whatever that is. And that could be your local farmer that, you know, has this type of farming or it's, you know, this type of company that's making their product this way, but we all have the power to vote with our dollar. And that alone, you know, that, that alone, that's, we're the, we're the largest economic generator in the world right now. We, we do have the largest, we have the largest agriculture economy. And, and so if consumers at, at a whole at large decide to vote with their dollar, this all ships overnight. Uh, for us, I'm, we're interested to see how this plays out because we have caught a lot of early attention uh, we've been fairly influential again behind the scenes, you know. But when it comes to consumers, we will we'll be producing our fruits and vegetables later this year, and 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 then it becomes an active conversation. And and is it going to be a slow roll with us, maybe, or is it going to be something that we can elevate the conversation and, and people are talking about it? And we are voting with our dollar on what food we do and don't buy and what we what we provide to our families. So I'm hopeful, but it's it's going to take leadership at a lot of different levels and, you know, activists and artists with politicians and business leaders, but ultimately it goes down to the everyday person and what, what do they decide to do with their dollar? And, 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 and that's where, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's not a one year process for us. We feel like it's a, it's a decade long journey, but, but we definitely think the time. It's a long game. And how can listeners follow the journey? How, how can people keep up to date with what you are doing at the company and, and the kinds of innovation that you guys are helping to champion? Well, later this year, we'll be selling our tomatoes to the top 25 grocers in the U.S., mainly on the East Coast, Midwest, Southeast, so about that 70% population. So go ahead and start asking your grocer, have app harvest tomatoes, because we'll be at uh, we'll be at many to all of the largest retailers in the country, uh, Walmart, Costco, Kroger. Uh, so you can look us up, Google App Harvest. There's some great sending out tomatoes all across the East Coast this year. All right, my friend. My favorite question to ask everyone, and it will be your last, I promise. I'll let you go in a minute. <laughs> um, the The podcast, as you know, is called Work in Progress, and I'm curious – from where you sit today, what feels like a work in progress in your life? Yeah, it's it's really for me personally. It's it's trying to enjoy the journey. I mean, there's there's no destination. Right? We we all only go one place, and that's somewhere we pass away, and that's that's it. But you know, it's the journey every day and living in the present moment, and not getting caught up in what did I do two years ago or two weeks ago? Or what am I doing in two years? So. You know, the work in progress for me and, and even the journey for us as a whole at App Harvest is, you know, this is very hard work. It's challenging. And we believe we're tackling very big problems that are important to all of us. And the emotions get there and we all get worked up. But, you know, trying to understand that, you know, all we have is the present moment and trying to enjoy that journey. It's, it's hard and it's something we all collectively, you know, here on this end try to do every day. But but, you know, just being cognizant that it's a journey. And so the work in progress is really, you know, just enjoying that present moment and the journey along the way. Requires kind of a, 
At least for me, I feel like that requires a bit of a daily check-in of, am I present? Am I, am I savoring this? Even, even the hard stuff, am I, really, am I really in it? And I think that's a really healthy thing to try to institute. Yeah, and, and that's all we can do, right? So these, these big complex problems that circle the world and you know, the, the fear and anxiety of, of, of all of it, it, it can get overwhelming, but I do hope it's the start of a much larger conversation. And yeah. to you and any of your friends that, that ever want to come hike the Appalachian Trail or, or visit what we're doing here, uh, we agritourism is what our governor is. So we, we've had a very supportive governor, and he's, he's going to be... Uh, I'm sure at, at our opening later this year, and we're trying to deem this facility you know, agritourism. So anybody and everybody that wants to come check it out, uh, we'll have we'll have uh, we'll have 2.8 million square feet of, of beautiful vegetables growing on the inside. So hopefully, you and some friends can come check it out sometime. Awesome! Thank you so much, Jonathan. That was great. I'm I'm really really excited about it. Thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Clint Brilliant Anatomy.